Hey listeners, welcome back to Massage Noir Murders. I'm your host, Renetta Wrightout, and today I'm going to pick up the Bridget Shield case right where we left off. If you haven't listened to episode six, please go back and check it out. Otherwise, this episode won't make much sense. Also, keep in mind that there's bound to be something mentioned that may possibly trigger you, so listener discretion is advised. If you recall where we left off in episode six, Atlanta City Councilwoman Cleta Winslow held a press conference with the Atlanta Police Department announcing a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in Bridget Shields' murder case. Police hit the streets of Oakland City, the community in which Bridget's body was found, and went door to door passing out flyers in hopes that new information would surface. They thought the reward money would motivate the public to reach out and help bring justice to this case and some semblance of peace to Bridget's family. While detectives sifted through possible leads, remember the evidence collected from around Bridget's car? You know, the Sprite bottle, Coke can, blunt wrappers, cigarettes, and Bridget's dress? Well, detectives submitted these items to their forensics lab for testing, hoping to pull the DNA of Bridget's killers from them. Now, for some reason, the only evidence that's ever publicly discussed pertaining to forensics is the DNA found on the Sprite bottle. I assume police wanted to hold this information pretty close to the chest in order to preserve the integrity of the investigation. This isn't uncommon, as the idea is to protect the case from false confessions, misinformation, and other things that can impede an investigation. In the 48 Hours Presents Atlanta show that documented much of the investigation of this case, Detective Vincent Velasquez demonstrated his understanding of DNA forensic sorcery. So let me break it down for you as he did. And before I get into it, I have to say the nerd in me absolutely loves this explanation. I didn't know exactly how DNA evidence was processed and matched to victims or suspects. So personally, I really enjoyed this part. Okay, so here we go. I'm sure you remember that a rape kit had been used on Bridget. It not only confirmed she had been sexually assaulted, but also that at least one of the sick fucks who did it didn't do a good job of protecting his own DNA from being left behind because the rape kit picked up on his semen. Now, it wasn't a ton of DNA. In fact, it wasn't enough to run through CODIS, which is the national DNA database of arrested persons, but it was enough for forensics wizards to work their magic. Detective Velasquez explained that the kit contained four alleles. Genome.gov describes an allele as, quote, one of two or more versions of a gene. An individual inherits two alleles for each gene, one from each parent. If the two alleles are the same, the individual is homozygous for that gene. If the alleles are different, the individual is heterozygous, end quote. So basically, that means If you receive one allele for, let's say, brown hair and one for red, then the gene is considered heterozygous versus someone with two alleles for brown hair who would be homozygous. So are you still with me? I hope so. 
So the forensics folks separated the Y chromosomes from the four alleles found in the semen and tested them against the Y chromosomes of the DNA found on the Sprite bottle. As Detective Velasquez further explained, every male in the same family will have the same Y chromosome if they share the same father. So linking the chromosomes of the two samples will narrow down the suspect pool to a specific family. Now, if your head is about to explode from too much information, then fret no more. After some magical sciencey stuff, a match was made between the Sprite bottle and the rape kit DNA. From there, they were able to build a full DNA profile from the Sprite bottle that was sufficient to be dropped into CODIS. Whew, that was a lot, right? Listen, I get super pumped about this stuff because I think it's so amazing how they're able to do this. Essentially, this is the same type of DNA magic that has identified tons of victims and killers. Killers like the Grim Sleeper, an infamous serial killer from South Central Los Angeles who preyed upon young Black folks, primarily women. Anyway, as usual, I digress. Needless to say, the team of detectives were just as pumped about the DNA findings as I am, but the joy was somewhat dimmed by the cold fact that the DNA submitted to CODIS didn't yield any results. Boo! But detectives didn't give up hope that the DNA would eventually come into play. However, until a matching DNA profile entered CODIS, the DNA evidence didn't do much good in the present tense. Detectives spun their wheels while running down any and every lead that came their way. Again, I have to shout out this team of investigators because it seems like they left no stone unturned. If someone came to them with credible information, they investigated the tip immediately because in their eyes, ruling out suspects or persons of interest was just as important as fingering the one who did the crime. One such lead came in about two guys that are supposed to be brothers, Zach and Sam. Apparently, someone claimed the two were involved in Bridget's death, with Sam being the alleged killer. So detectives Quinn and Velasquez did their due diligence and questioned both persons of interest. After tracking down Zach and Sam and obtaining DNA and statements from them both, the detectives quickly ruled them out. So again, the case lost momentum and began to grow cold. As Bridget's case bounced between hot and cold, life continued on, and the city of Atlanta was plagued with horrible gang violence. Clayton County's Deputy Chief Assistant District Attorney Chris Ferry told WBS-TV News that the gang problem faced in ATL was going nowhere fast, and quote, we as a state and we as a nation need to take this gang crisis very seriously. It's everywhere, end quote. Five months after Bridget's murder, a string of Roland 20s gang-related murders would eventually intersect with Bridget's case and blow it wide open. Before we get further into the story, it's impossible to continue without letting you know just how prevalent gang activity and violence is in Atlanta. In 2003, Justice.gov reported that law enforcement agencies estimated that there were roughly 58 gangs in the state of Georgia with 1,950 members in the Atlanta area alone. 
Now that it's been almost two decades since those 2003 findings, I shudder to think of the number of active gangs and members in Atlanta now, but their contribution to society definitely demands attention. In fact, the gun violence, courtesy of gangs and ATL, has caused recent research to show that a person is far more likely to be a victim of violent crime, especially gun violence, in Atlanta than in Chicago. Now, personally, I found that really hard to believe, considering how much smaller ATL is in comparison to Chicago. But a look at the Atlanta and Chicago Police Department's crime data for 2020 and 2021, along with the 2019 census, pretty much confirmed it. You can find out more about this by visiting the Verify page of 11 News in Atlanta. They did a whole segment on this and pretty much broke down how they interpreted the data they reported. And while many of the gangs in Atlanta originated in other places, they mainly only show loyalty to their own. But even that is a precarious exception. I found, without even having to specifically search for this, at least one story of a Roland Twenties gang leader who was convicted of the murder of his own sex member because the man refused to fight his cousin and rival gang during a basketball game. As you can imagine, These folks are hardcore and basically don't care about anyone or anything in general. The Roland Twenties gang is one of the most active gangs, and it isn't even native to Atlanta. It was born in the city of Long Beach, California, and made famous by folks like Snoop Dogg. When everybody and their mama moved to Atlanta in search of new opportunities, and for a large collective of skin folk, the Roland Twenties were among them. As a result, bodies dropped all around, and police scrambled then and continue to do so now to investigate and close cases accordingly. But as we can see from Bridget's case, this is no easy task. With that said, let's go back to 2016, but this time we're moving forward from Bridget's murder, which took place in May, to the fall months of that year. It's Saturday night, On October 22nd, 2016, Antonika Brown left her Jonesboro, Georgia home for a night of clubbing in Decatur. She's a busy mom with a house full of kids, some of which aren't her children, but instead kids she agreed to look after for a while. Tanika also has several children of her own, the oldest being 16-year-old Brandon. Now, I assume Brandon was left in charge of making sure all the younger kids were tucked in safe and sound for the night while Tanika went out for a few hours. The idea was that it was late and the kids would soon be asleep and she'd be back in a few hours. So no harm, no foul, right? Unfortunately, that's not how things turned out. Not long into Tanika's night out on the town, she received a phone call from Brandon that would be the beginning of the end of life as she knew it. Brandon was frantic and yelling words into the phone that she could barely understand. But it soon became clear that Brandon was telling her that a shooting had taken place in their home. By the time she made it back to her residence, it was surrounded by police. It was then she discovered that two of her babies had been murdered. 15-year-old Davion and 11-year-old Tatiana Coates were killed in their sleep when a group of gang members attacked their home. Apparently, they were looking for someone else, someone who had stolen a bunch of guns from them. 
This person they were looking for was DeAndre Mitchell, a 15-year-old boy from Chattanooga, Tennessee, who had only been staying with Tanika's family for a couple of weeks as a favor to his mom. DeAndre wasn't even at the house that night because he'd run off earlier after stealing the guns, about which none of Tanika's family even knew. Brandon would later testify in court that he'd been asleep when he heard a commotion that sounded a lot like gunshots. As he started to wake up, he heard more shots and realized someone was shooting inside the house. As the shots rang out, he had no choice but to hide when two bullets were fired into his bedroom. When it was all said and done, it would be discovered that Davion and Tatiana were killed by a gang of men who stormed the house. These two murders were senseless, brutal acts of violence that ultimately produced nothing but terror, grief, and trauma. Eventually, 11 alleged gang members would be charged for this act of violence, two of which were a fifth grade teacher and young DeAndre Mitchell. But that would happen much later and is a story for another day. Listen, I could go down a major rabbit hole giving more details about the alleged 11, but we'd be here all day and night. Let's just say most of these dudes weren't good and represented the infamous Roland 20s, so I will let you imagine what they were like. I found many similar murders linked to several of these guys and a ton of others from the same gang. If you're interested in learning more, just search for headlines like 11 people arrested for killing two children while they slept, and you'll find their names and can fall down the rabbit hole like I did. FYI, it's pretty chilling and heartbreaking stuff, so tread carefully. Fast forward 48 hours to Monday, October 24th at around 8.45 p.m. Lamont Walker, a dance teacher, entered the home of his Stone Mountain apartment that he shared with his two roommates, an engaged couple named Samuel White and Sylvia Watson. Lamont and Samuel had been friends for 50 years, pretty much since they were under 10 years old. The two men had been through a lot together, including having overcome the struggle of substance abuse. So it wasn't strange at all that Samuel welcomed Lamont into his home with Sylvia. As Lamont entered the apartment, something caught his eye outside the bedroom of Samuel and Sylvia. He assumed the cat had been up to mischief and knocked something over. If anyone else has a cat, you know that this is totally probable. You see, Lamont has an issue with his eyes that causes them to constantly produce tears. So he couldn't quite make out what exactly was on the floor until he dabbed his eyes with the tissue he carried in his pocket. When his eyes were clear, they landed upon a sight he would never be able to unsee. There on the floor were both Samuel and Sylvia, with their hands and feet bound behind their backs and blood pooling around them. They'd both been shot in the back of the head. Lamont would later come to find out that Sylvia had been ambushed after coming home from a doctor's appointment earlier that afternoon by two assailants. The men appeared seemingly out of nowhere and forced Sylvia back into her car at gunpoint. They made her drive around to different ATMs in an attempt to steal as much money as possible. So does this sound a little familiar? Because it should. 
ATM security cameras clearly showed a terrified Sylvia and one of her captors as the two approached various ATMs. When the contents of Sylvia's account were exhausted, the two murderers forced Sylvia to return to her apartment where her fiancé Samuel was. The three of them entered the apartment where Psychos 1 and 2 tied up the sweet and loving couple and executed them on the floor. The killers then proceeded to pillage the house for over an hour, stealing anything they deemed of value. Nine days later, on November 2nd, police would apprehend 27-year-old Christopher Crisco Spencer after he was positively identified from the various security footage that captured his image. Two weeks after that, 28-year-old Vernon Beeman, a.k.a. Vito Corleone, was arrested during a traffic stop in Memphis, Tennessee. The two would later be tried and convicted, thank God, of the brutal slayings of Samuel White, Sylvia Watson, and Davion and Tatiana Coates. During the course of the investigation, it was discovered that Samuel and Sylvia were targeted because it was rumored in their neighborhood that they came into some settlement money. See, the two killers were on the run, and who they ran from was the cops in Clayton County who were looking for the gang of thugs who murdered Davion and Tatiana in their beds. Before these two heathens would face justice for their murder spree, their DNA was collected and entered into CODIS. As it turned out, the DNA of one of the killers pinged as a match for unidentified DNA entered during the summer of 2016. DNA found on a particular Sprite bottle. The DNA of Christopher Crisco Spencer. Okay, so if your blood is pumping and your mind racing to connect the dots, then you're not alone. This is but a fraction of what the team of detectives investigating Bridget's murder felt when they got wind of a DNA hit. By the time they found out about this, it's well into 2017, almost a year and a half after Bridget's murder. And even though this is wonderful news, there's still work to be done. Most district attorneys won't take cases they don't think they can win, which in my opinion is bullshit, but hey, such is life. Because of this, police have the responsibility to load their case files with as much evidence and supporting documentation as possible, and it can take quite a long while to obtain that information. So they started digging into Christopher's background, looking to tie him even more so to Bridget. In doing so, detectives found out that back in 2014, Spencer was a person of interest in a murder that took place in, can you guess where? Oakland City Park, the exact same place where Bridget was found. Police investigating the 2014 murder tried hard to pin Christopher down, but he ran to Arkansas in an effort to ditch the police tale. My source material for this story didn't mention the 2014 victim's name or really anything specific about the case. However, my web sleuthing dug up a murder that happened on Father's Day, June 16th, around 2.30 in the afternoon. A witness celebrating the holiday in the park heard three gunshots and saw the shooter flee in a white Nissan Altima. Unfortunately, the witness did not get a clear look at the shooter. 
Now, I don't know if this is the same case that Christopher was a person of interest in, but it seems like a very real possibility. Either way, this dude is very dangerous and he wasn't afraid to kill. He just hadn't been caught until he murdered the couple in Stone Mountain. Unfortunately, it looks like the 2014 murder is still unsolved and is part of a very long list of cases that the media and law enforcement seem to have forgotten about. On top of finding out about the 2014 murder, detectives also realized that Christopher's last known address was actually in Oakland City. In fact, he lived just a block away from the park. He literally could walk from his house to where Bridget's body was found. Detectives pulled up a satellite image of Atlanta. They mapped the places they knew Christopher had been his home where Bridget was found, the strip mall where her car was located, the Stone Mountain area where he killed Samuel and Sylvia, and the Shell gas station where the Sprite and can of Coke were bought. So now that they have these locations all mapped out, their next task was to link him to the same locations as Bridget's phone. And if they matched each other, that would be one more nail in the coffin. In order to do this, they hoped DeKalb County had phone records for Christopher's phone on May 30th and May 31st. But as luck would have it, about two weeks after Bridget's murder, Christopher just so happened to get a new phone and the county only had records for the new phone number and not the old one. However, it wasn't a total bust because they read in Christopher's texts with his mom that on June 16th, he told her that he was quote, mentally messed up in the head, end quote. He went on to tell his mom, quote, it's like, no matter what I do, I'm like the person who always does wrong. I just need help before it's too late and I lose it, end quote. It was at this point in the text convo between Christopher and his mom that she told him to call her, which he did. And they spoke for about 20 minutes. As soon as the phone call ended, He texted his mom telling her not to give his name to the police. Obviously, detectives decided it was time to talk to Christopher's mom. So detectives Lowe and Zimbrick headed to Arkansas to have that conversation. They also had high hopes she would be able to provide Christopher's old phone number so they could track its whereabouts the night of Bridget's murder. Christopher's mom, who I will call Shirley for the sake of this podcast since she wasn't named in any source material I found. Shirley told detectives that she couldn't quite remember the last time Christopher was there, but she did remember that whenever it was, the two of them had a huge argument. According to Shirley, Christopher had gotten into some trouble while he was in Arkansas. Allegedly, whatever happened, Christopher took off before the police could arrive at the scene. Christopher told Shirley then that he didn't like the police and he didn't want her talking to them or giving them his name, period. When detectives asked her about the old phone number, of course, she said she didn't know it or have it. Needless to say, she wasn't super helpful, but I guess that can be expected. She is his mom after all. Now that detectives have talked to his mom, they decided it was time to talk to the man himself. So they set up an interview in hopes that they would also be able to obtain a fresh DNA sample from him. 
Detectives came up with a plan to see if they could coax the desired outcome of the interview with Christopher. The plan was to show him a ton of photos of different women and add Bridget's photo into the mix to gauge his reaction when he saw her picture. Apparently, this is a tactic that had been successful in the past, so they hoped it would be here as well. Also, they strategized that if Christopher claimed that he knew Bridget, it could possibly hinder the investigation a bit, although I'm not totally clear on how. But if he denied knowing her, meeting her, and having sex with her, they would be able to nail him with the DNA evidence. The idea was to eliminate any doubt at all so that the DA could get a conviction beyond reasonable doubt. They didn't have any expectations of a confession because confessions are actually pretty rare, despite what one of my favorite crime shows depicts. And that show was The Closer. It's an oldie but goodie. If you haven't watched it, you need to go to Hulu or maybe it's HBO. I think it's HBO and watch it. It's really good. (laughs) Anyway. When they arrived at the prison to interview Christopher, he was nervous and wanted to know why Detectives Lowe and Velasquez were there. Detective Velasquez took point during the interview and told him that they were investigating a string of cases that they believed were connected and that Christopher's name came up, along with 12 other people. Detective Velasquez continued on saying that they were going to show Christopher some pictures to see if he recognized any of the victims. Before they began, Detective Velasquez asked Christopher if he wanted his lawyer present, to which Christopher replied that he didn't have anything to hide, so he was waiving his right to counsel. Okay, cool. When they shuffled the pictures of the women and laid them out before Christopher, Bridget's picture was number three. Detective Velasquez began with the first photo, a woman described as a white female. He asked Christopher if he knew the woman or had ever had sexual contact with her. Christopher answered confidently that he had not. Detective Velasquez moved on to photo number two, a woman described as a Black female, and asked the same questions. Do you know this woman? Have you ever met her? Have you had sexual contact with her? Again, the answer was a confident no. When Detective Velasquez got to Bridget's picture, he identified her as a mixed female and asked the same questions. This time, there was hesitation, and detectives could not only hear it, but saw on his face that Christopher recognized Bridget. But of course, Christopher said no when he answered the first couple of questions. However, when the detective asked if he had sexual contact with her, he opted for an uh uh-uh instead of the no he'd stuck with this whole time. Lastly, Christopher was asked if there was any reason why his DNA would be connected to the woman in the third photo, aka Bridget, and he told them that there wasn't any reason for that. So Detective Velasquez asked Christopher if he'd be willing to submit a DNA sample to rule him out, and this time, Christopher declined and asked for his lawyer. Now, the next part had me giggling a bit. Because Detective Velasquez hit Christopher with the search warrant for the collection of his DNA anyway, which he had no choice but to comply with whether his lawyer was present or not. So in other words, he tried it. And I think that he might have even been a little annoyed by that. But yeah, it was just kind of like a a funny moment while watching that documentary. Now, I know this whole 
conversation isn't exactly a smoking gun or a confession, but this is precisely the way they'd hope the conversation would go to undermine a not guilty plea and defense. And short of a confession, this really is the best outcome. The detectives finished up the interview and left the prison feeling pretty confident and happy that they'd done their jobs well and could wrap up the case and present it prepped, primed, and ready for the DA. On May 31st, 2018, exactly two years to the day after Bridget's murder, the Cab County Police Department held a press conference with Bridget's mom, Angela, and her grandmother, Beverly, and announced to the public that they were finally able to identify one of Bridget's murderers. So although police are confident that Christopher is one of Bridget's murderers, he still hasn't been convicted of the crime. He was, however, convicted of killing Davion and Tatiana Coates, as well as Samuel White and Sylvia Watson. He's currently serving more consecutive life sentences than I can actually remember, so the DA isn't really pressed to take him to court for Bridget's murder. In the eyes of the law, the predator is already off the street, and there's no need to move forward. Captain O'Connor even says as much in his press conference, which I have to say kind of rubbed me wrong, but I get it. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, what about the other killer? And I wish I could give you an explanation about that, but I guess we will be left to wonder forever because to this day, the second person seen with Bridget and Christopher that night is still unknown and possibly free to kill again. On top of that, I still have a lot of other questions, like what about the DNA testing on the Coke can? We never learned about that DNA or if any was even found. I can only assume a DNA profile was also entered into CODIS, but maybe there weren't any matches? I don't know. The next thing is, where exactly was Bridget murdered? If you remember from part one, police were certain she was killed outside of the park because the scene was free of blood and there were no shell casings from the bullets that took her life. They came to put that to rest because a witness reported the screams of a woman and several gunshots coming from the park in the early hours of May 31st. However, I can't help but wonder if maybe Bridget was actually killed at Christopher's house. You know, since he lives so close to the park, they literally could have carried her body there. It's possible the witness lived really close to Christopher too and heard what she thought was coming from the park. I don't know. It's just a guess, but clearly we need some answers there, right? And if that's the case, what was the point of them driving around the parking lot at the park? Remember, that was captured on the park surveillance camera. And lastly, how did they manage to get back to wherever they lived or hung out at after they dumped Bridget's car and body? Her car was found a whole 25 miles away. Mind you, it was in the middle of the night. Sure, I guess they could have walked, but that seems like a stretch to me. It seems more probable that there had to have been a second vehicle somewhere in the mix, but I guess we'll never know. I encourage you to set your Google alerts to monitor the web for updates about this case, because believe you me, I will definitely have mine set. It very well could be that we may find out who the second killer is one day in the future. At least that's really what I hope for. So 
that's pretty much the end of Bridget's story for now. But there's one last tangent I want to take you all down. I intentionally left this to the end of Bridget's story because I didn't want to distract you too much from the facts of the case. However, I think all of this is worth mentioning. As I researched Bridget's murder, I came across a thread on the interwebs that provided a lot of context for me and led me down a rabbit hole that turned out to be more of a labyrinth of underground tunnels. In other words, it's a lot. So much so that I think I might do a full series about the murders connected to this conspiracy, but we'll see. I can't lie. Part of me is super scared and rightfully so to go down that road, but let me know if this is something you all would like to hear. Anyway, remember how I mentioned Atlanta was plagued with a ton of gang violence? Well, it was at an all-time high in 2016 and 2017, and apparently that wasn't just a coincidence. On April 28, 2016, the Department of Justice announced that, quote, 48 alleged members of the violent gangster disciples gang, including the top leaders in Tennessee and Georgia, have been charged in two indictments and accused of conspiring to participate in a racketeering enterprise that included multiple murders, attempted murder, and drug crimes, end quote. You can read the entire press release on the DOJ website to see the full list of names. You'll notice that the gang targeted is the Gangster Disciples Gang, originated in Chicago. Apparently, this gang is affiliated with the Crips and, by extension, possibly the Roland Twenties. And we know Christopher Bridget's murderer is affiliated with the Twenties as well. So far, my preliminary research hasn't found a source that officially links the 20 set to GD, but since they are Crips, I think it's a safe assumption that they're connected. On top of that, it's known that Oakland City actually falls under the GD territory, which again, another link to the 20s. So when those two indictments dropped, the murder rate skyrocketed and folks were picked off like flies. Almost every day, bodies dropped. It's believed that these killings were likely to keep witnesses and potential informants silent. Gangs were in survival mode, which meant others had to lose their lives so the wheels could continue to churn. As we know, Bridget's death fell within this time frame, along with at least 50 other people. Remember how police canvassed the Oakland City area and got absolutely nowhere? Well, also keep in mind that as far as I could tell, the $10,000 reward money was never given to anyone. And that makes sense because people were scared to talk. It was obvious something big was going on and people didn't want to lose their lives. Those alive to tell the tales wanted to stay that way. So they kept silent. They understood that snitches don't just get stitches. They catch bullets. One of the souls taken during this violent time was that of Jakesha Brown, a 35-year-old aspiring model and actress who was shot and killed like Bridget. The similarities between Jakesha and Bridget are chilling, and I plan to explore Jakesha's story in the next episode of Noir Murders.
As always, thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss future episodes. And last, but definitely not least, be safe, folks. It's a savage world out there. This episode was written and produced by Renetta Rideout. 